Millions of frontline workers keep our economy running and are provided with the latest technology to do their jobs. But digital adoption, especially by frontline workers, is really hard. This is Frontline Innovators. We explore how to overcome challenges and achieve success when we empower our essential workers. I'm Justin Lake. And I'm Gene Signorini. Together, we speak with experts who are leading the way and driving digital transformation to the front line. This podcast is sponsored by Skillful on a mission to help frontline workers learn and use the technology needed to succeed in their jobs. I'm your host, Justin Lake, and we've got another awesome episode lined up for today. Today's guest is passionate about helping organizations adopt digital technologies to achieve benefits faster. He's a ProSize certified change practitioner and is currently the director of IT, OCM, and change enablement at Mattel. Please welcome to the show, Tony Futuros. Hey, Tony. Hey, thanks for having me, Justin. So glad you're here, and I'm glad I get to ask you the question, what do you see as the biggest challenge facing the deskless workforce today? Well, it, it, it's interesting because it's the same challenge we're all facing. Uh, it's really about capacity, right? Things are changing so much, so furiously that as individuals, we're all trying to deal with not only the changes that are occurring in work, but also the changes that are occurring you know, within our individual lives. I am a firm believer that uh, deskless um, workers, excuse me, uh, frontline workers uh, are acutely impacted by this. You know, if you think about what's been going on over the last three to four years uh, with COVID and all the challenges and, and, um, and labor market changes that occurred as a result of that. And then as we kind of came through that and we've kind of entered this new reality, um, the country has now changed as well. So there are significant challenges just in terms of inflation, that sort of thing. So unlike, you know, we'll call it the workers that are are not deskless, um, who maybe are working in a, a hybrid or remote situation, uh, the frontline workers really are in roles that don't afford them that opportunity. So I think they're feeling that a lot more acutely. So, um, Change capacity, I see, I am seeing is is really the challenge that we're having, particularly with that 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 group of, of people. Yeah, you you just mentioned this whole conversation about knowledge workers and remote work or hybrid work environments and stuff like that. And if I mm-hmm. see one more freaking post on LinkedIn about <laughs> people talking about <laughs> Zoom fatigue and, and questioning hybrid work and all this other stuff, it's it's driving mm-hmm. me crazy because it it leaves out the overwhelming majority of the workers in the economy aren't having that conversation. And so yeah. truly it's, it's literally 20 or 25% of the workforce is sitting on LinkedIn bitching about, you know, hybrid mm-hmm. work environments or, or whether they should have to go back to the office or not. And it, it just seems so, I'm not saying it's not a legitimate question to ask. It sure. just seems like my goodness, every minute that we're talking about that stuff, we're not talking about the fact that the men and women on the front lines don't have that luxury. Right. No, completely understood. I mean, I kind of looking at look at it as everyone's got a different set of issues, right? You know, for the folks that are that are maybe in, in remote and hybrid situations, they may be more acutely feeling the pinch of home life, right? Which we know a lot of people were really trying to to surf the, their children. Their I mean, I literally have two dogs laying right next to me as we're talking. Yep. Yep. You know, um, so 
I, I think there are unique challenges associated with, with that group, but I think the frontline workers in particular um, have really gone through a significantly challenging period. Um, so when it comes to, to you know, change management and um, introducing technologies, I just feel that that uphill battle that the frontline workers are, are facing, um, that slope is still pretty steep right now. Yeah. You mentioned inflation. I think you're the first person on frontline innovators to mention inflation because we really hadn't been talking a lot about inflation mm -hmm. prior to the last couple of months. Right. And you, you just made me realize that, you know, sure, inflation certainly affects all of us, um, but it may affect some of the men and women on the front lines in, in unique ways. Um, mm -hmm just because of the, the profile of their work and, and um, you know, just the, the nature of their pay levels and things like that, that could be impacting, you know, how they're absorbing, um, yeah. have an impact on how they feel that pain. Absolutely. I mean, it's definitely influenced uh, the approach that, that I'm personally taking as well as my team when it comes to these groups, because, um, you know, in many roles that I've played throughout the years, you know, uh, I've supported, um, groups of people that that you know kind of are kind of in that deskless, deskless environment remote uh on the go or front facing to, to customers and clients um super super critical roles um and uh they've always had unique needs when it comes to you know adopting new technologies new solutions new ways of working and doing things um i just feel it's really been amped up uh in recent years with all the challenges that they're facing. And now in particular, you know, we understand that in addition to, to having to absorb and, and uh, really be able to, to function appropriately in this new environment, you know, you'd be fooling yourself if, if you didn't realize that in a lot of these cases, people are actually wondering, hey, can I even afford to continue having this job? And now potentially I have all this additional stress of, you know, potentially having to do things differently and, and, and that sort of thing. So, um, you know, we really kind of take that into account in terms of how we approach a lot of the things that we do. Um, it's something that we, we embed into our teams. It's really a filter that we look through um, to ensure that, you know, the <laughs> best laid plans, right? You know, right. whenever there's a project plan to implement something new or whatever the case may be, you know, not everything is going to go exactly as planned, right? So, you know, we always try to kind of apply that filter when we're working with, with these groups to, to help even the project teams understand that, hey, this is a very different environment than let's say, you know, uh, the accounting department or the whatever department or that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, it's something that that we really have to be careful about in these days. That it's something I'm acutely aware of, and I'm sure a lot of my colleagues that support these folks are also very aware of. I, there are a couple of things that I want to come back to, um, specifically about capacity and the impact that that has on, uh, or or how that is exacerbated through turnover and unfilled positions and stuff like that. But I want mm -hmm. to pause on that for a minute. Sure. I want to give our audience a little bit of a background on, on who they're hearing from here. So give us a little bit about your background. <laughs> you're a New Jersey guy mm -hmm. at your core. I know you're not in New Jersey right now, but you, you, you can't take New Jersey out of somebody I know. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so tell us about uh, how you ended up in the role you're in today. 
Yeah, it's kind of like having a soprano without the soap, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, I, I you know, I, I'm passionate about helping organizations stop, you know, technologies and, and really accelerate the value that they get from those technologies. Um, I, I feel that I'm very fortunate uh, in that I actually found uh, a calling uh, that I enjoy so much that it's actually my hobby. Um, so, you know, the people in my family are not big fans of mine because it's, I'm very, you know, singularly minded because I'm always thinking about, you know, how do we make things better for, you know, people adopting technology and that sort of things, right? Because, you know, there's, there's a unique thing that that's happened, uh, in the world, you know, over the past, you know, 15 years or so with the advent of mobile technologies and, um, you know, all the access that we've been provided to services and the push that the COVID pandemic has created in terms of, of um, you know, new digital transformations for a lot of organizations. Um, when you're inside of an organization that is serving up solutions, you are now also being judged, right, by commercial organizations, you know, by people who interact with technology on a daily basis, who actually are experiencing world-class user experiences. I mean, think about it. How many times does, does Amazon drop, you know, code changes to their apps? I, I heard some absurd number, like 500 times in some period of time, yeah. day, week, whatever it was, you know, and here, here you are inside of your own organization, just trying to get people to, you know, either use two new fields or, you know, use a new yeah. app or something along those lines. So user experience has really become a critical factor um, in, the, in this brave new world. So um, that's one of the areas that I'm very interested in. And, and, you know, I always, you know, focus in on kind of the experience component uh, of the, of the entire uh, recipe for, for folks. So where did you, you know? develop that, that sensitivity for user experience? Yeah, so so I've been in IT for thirty years, right? So I can't believe I'm actually using the word thirty years. I, you know, mm -hmm. not too long ago, I felt like it was ten years, but um, yeah, thirty years. So I've seen a lot of changes in terms of the technological landscape, right? We kind of started in the big iron era, era moved into client server days, then we kind of came out of that, then we back to centralization, and then we became edge and all these other things. So I've kind of surfed all of that throughout my life. Um, I've always been in IT. Um, the capacities that I've usually played have either been in the project or program management realm and then later on in more of like um, IT um, and business partner type of roles. So throughout my entire career, I've always kind of had one leg inside of uh, IT and working with IT roles across the board, you know, IT leadership teams and, and everyone else inside of it. But also I've been working with, with business partners, you know, and again, you know, C-suite all the way through the entire organizations. And I've always been kind of striking balances, but the thing that was always missing for me was because everything I did was very kind of uh, discreet and project oriented, Shortly after we, we delivered, right, and I'm using the air quotes, you can't see me doing it, but I'm using air quotes right now, trust me on this one. Um, um, after I delivered, then immediately we kind of either, you know, took a Saturday break or kind of moved on to the next thing, right, and kind of started the process all over again. So the element that I was really missing was how did this actually play out? 
right? Because the value doesn't start until after delivery, <laughs> you know? And it doesn't really matter what, what level of adoption is required on the project. It could be even like a, moving your data center into the cloud, right? Which you probably don't need too much adoption around, but you don't get that value until the move is done. And it's the same thing with, with, with these, right? If you're deploying a new technology, a new capability, whatever the case may be, um, you know, the business doesn't start to get that until it starts to get used. Um, so I never really got to stick around long enough to actually see it firsthand you know, how we were moving the needle inside of these organizations. So, you know, uh, several years ago, I decided to, to gradually make a pivot, which is a little bit of an oxymoron, but we'll go, just go with it. Uh, so um, I recognized that organizational change management and change leadership in general was kind of the practice that really allowed me to be a part of it from the genesis you know, from almost ideation in a lot of cases, all the way through to not only delivery, but staying with, you know, uh, the impacted organizations that are now trying to, to actually get the value of, of all these technology investments, um, which was really the part that was lacking. So, you know, I, I had shifted my career kind of away from kind of the hardcore, harder core, um, you know, uh, delivery disciplines and, and focused more on change management. It's interesting though, because, you know, as part and parcel of that journey, and, and I kind of landed there and I've been practicing now for, for a number of years, um, my IT background, project management background, and now, you know, the the, the uh, expertise that I've delivered in change, uh, developed in change leadership, um, I've realized that like a lot of other professionals, uh, professions rather, we're kind of like doctors. You know, I mean, all of us have general practitioner skills, right? Like, you know, how to take temperatures, read blood tests, all that other fun stuff. But I have a lot of um, um, colleagues uh, that, you know, in the industry where, for example, they don't have as deep an IT experience that, uh, as I do. You know, maybe they've delivered solutions, but they've never actually been part of an IT organization or they're coming in from the human resources side of the house. So their focus is predominantly culture shifting and that sort of thing. So for me personally, the niche that I've kind of landed on is that laser focus on uh, technology, technology adoption, you know? So, so I kind of think of, I take almost like a startup, you know, kind of view of this, right? Because I'm always looking for those early adopters. I'm trying to get into the, to the majority after that. And I'm trying to go after the late bloomers. And um, the way I think and the way I act is more like the folks that are trying to run a startup. They're probably more your traditional change practitioners. Yeah. You, you said something. Value doesn't start until after delivery. <clears throat> and I'm curious to get your take on how you define the, the after delivery. And I, I don't mean to be snarky about it just in no. that, you know, cause delivery is not, somebody said something to me recently, it may have been on the podcast that there's a difference between installation and implementation where installation is the, the physical aspect of getting everything deployed and, and hooked up, but then mm -hmm. the implementation requires adoption. And that really struck a chord with me. So Absolutely. Um, I'm curious to get your take on that, what what does it mean to to be considered post delivery? Absolutely, I'll tell you every what I tell every single person in the C suite. Before the magic go live date, you're spending extra money but still doing the same thing. 
after the goal light date, you stop spending all that extra money and then you're realizing the benefits that you're trying to, to achieve. So you're either saving money or making more money. It's as simple as that. You know, so so that's how I, how I kind of flip the script on everybody. I don't get them thinking about our tactics and techniques. I get them thinking about the impact of the business. Yeah. And then then you kind of see the the light bulbs go off when you just position it that way. See, this is interesting. The, the way you answered that question, I, I think is important because what it tells me is, or validates something I believe to be true, which is that many times the C-suite doesn't really understand the difference between installation and, and yeah. implementation, right? Mm-hmm. When you use those terms or have some other way to describe the readiness of use mm-hmm. of that new technology. So they have probably been a part of making the decision to make significant investments in this new technology to get some transformative benefit to the business. Mm-hmm. But then it seems like all the focus has been on which tech, how much tech, which brand names, all of that kind of stuff. What's the budget. Yeah. Yep. And then the human adoption side of that is just like, oh yeah, well, everybody's just got to use it. Right. It's just going to kind of happen. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's and right. we know that that's just not true. So it, it sounds like you're finding that in, in the organizations that you've worked around that you've had to be a part of persuading other members of the leadership team that, listen, this isn't just going to happen automatically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know, luckily I, I don't find that I have to persuade too hard. You know, I, people kind of inherently get that. Um, w- what I am finding is you kind of have to manage expectations more about the pace of how you look, how you'll gain the benefits or, or realize the value that you're looking to. That's a good clarification. You know, okay. that's really where I actually do spend a lot of time and actually a significant amount of work while uh, working with, um, you know, uh, the CIOs and, 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 you know, other IT leaders. Um, and then again, I'm talking very generically across the path, you know, yeah. uh, path, many, many past lives. Um, I've had more than a cat, I think. Um, so, <laughs> um, but um, yeah, I mean, you know, what I actually find is the conversations that I'm having is really kind of aligning IT leadership with business leadership and helping them understand, hey, IT leadership, there's some additional investment you're going to have to make after delivery beyond just the hyper, the traditional hypercare activities like, oh, we have a war room in place and manning phones and, you know, all the kind of stuff you think about, right? Uh, there's probably additional investment in terms of supporting, uh, for example, you know, usage, maybe even in reporting, because a lot of times, a lot of the solutions may not necessarily have a, have a very straightforward way of kind of looking at system use, right? Uh, that sort of thing. So so it's managing their expectations to say, it ain't over until it's really over. But on the flip side, with the business partners, you know, the conversation is really about, let's manage your expectations, right? People are not going to miss the magically all of a sudden just go, oh, of course I know how to use all these things. I, of course I understand the differences. Let me just get right on that. I'll see you at the end of the day and you know, you can have your, whatever it is, you know, hundred million dollars in savings, you know. It's really about kind of setting goal, goals along the way, you know, to manage their expectations. So maybe, you know, in the first 30 to 60 days, you're looking at 10 to 25% achievement of the goal as people are still kind of ramping up, getting used to it. Then maybe, you know, a month later, you're looking at 50%, that sort of, what's realistic? And I help them determine what those goals look like, really depending upon how embedded this is becoming into your organization. So, for example, um, 
do you have any large other change initiatives, and most of them do, or business cycles coming up that are either going to detract or help reinforce this new thing that we're putting in? How do we leverage those as opportunities or how do we mitigate the risks so that we, you know, see an immediate, you know, dip. We kind of call it the camel humping, right? <laughs> you know, I have to yep. have to go like all of a sudden you start to see those those benefits, and then zoom. All of a sudden you might get like a ten percent reduction because I don't know something something happened. And all this is really kind of outside the quality of the solution, right? So if somebody accidentally disconnects a solution from a database, super simplistically, right? That's on you know IT or the vendor. Right, and that could bring things to a crashing halt and, and really impact that. So it's really about managing expectations on the IT side in terms of, hey, there's investment and still attention that still needs to be paid. And on the business partner side, it's about being realistic about how are you gonna grow into, into the goals? How are, you know, what are the expectations? And a lot of them love that because it actually helps prepare or even like a lot of times if they have to talk to the street or something like that and they really want to talk about something like like this it kind of gives them a little goal, goal post to check as they prepare for those conversations did we really do that oh, okay we can talk about it okay good to come kind of thing so yeah. um it's really about that that balancing that conversation really kind of giving that framework and that that way of thinking about it but also helping people understand what they're really accountable about that's really kind of what it, what it comes down to you know, and it's particularly important for initiatives that that really impact the frontline workers, right? Given the challenges that we talked about at the at the top of this call. Yeah. You know. Well, and I think the the structure of most IT projects, the way that I've seen it, is that there's a, a team stood up, project stood up, all the resources are associated with the implementation. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes, some of the support that's given by IT or at least funded through the IT project mechanism, some of that support is pushed over to the business during some type of sustain or you know business as usual phase. And to me, I, I've never been on the inside. I've, I'm always one of the, the vendors or consultants that's helping right, right. you know facilitate this on the outside. But it seems like there's this big valley between the project and the business as usual or sustained phase in a project. And it seems like there's a communication gap often mm-hmm. where, you know, these hot potatoes are being kind of launched over to say, Hey, <laughs> this, isn't, <laughs> this isn't my problem anymore because after July 4th, I'm out of here and moving on to the next project, right. Or whatever the date may be. And, uh, and then it's, it doesn't always seem to be picked up well. And I, and the reason that that I, I've become so sensitive to that is because I think that the people that suffer the most from that are the men and women on the front lines because mm-hmm. they're the project team now is disassembled. They've moved on to their next big, uh, initiative. And now all the people that are there are like, Hey, Hey, where, where'd everybody go? Well, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, do you see that in the organizations that you've been a part of? Do you see that same thing? Have you come up with any ways to, to mitigate that if you have? Yeah, so so that's kind of the garbage that the garbage that you're talking about, exactly the kind of stuff that I took that I, I you know, we're really there to help avoid, right? You know, because like I said earlier, we really think of taking an experiential perspective about it. So a big part of, of what we do really kind of focuses on continuity of experience throughout the process, right? So, you know, 
I'll, I'll, I'll talk tactics for a few minutes, right? So when I talk about continuity of experience, particularly for the folks that are impacted by a lot of, of, of these initiatives, what we try to do is, is rather than have these, you know, a couple of large peaks of a flurried activity where it's like, oh, we have to have a town hall and we're going to do, you know, these big presentations and put everybody to sleep for an hour and a half, you know, as, you know, as we talk about, you know, all the bits and bytes of what we're doing and that sort of thing. Um, what we do is actually kind of smash that down, you know, given the sensitivity of what I had described, and this is particularly important for the frontline folks, we really kind of start messaging all the way at the beginning, but we also manage expectations about it. And we tell them best laid plans, you know, you have to be comfortable with uncertainty because the things that we're talking about today are six months, a year out, things could change for a bunch of reasons. So what we're actually doing is we're pulsing you. We're making you aware of it. We're bringing you up to date throughout the process, okay? This is our current plan. We'll provide you updates. So what we're actually doing is kind of peeling off some of the uncertainty, which actually does create some of that capacity for people, right? Because what freaks them out the most? You know, I don't know or I don't trust, right? So, so we're telling them up front. We're being super transparent about these things. You know, this is the plan. Chances are things are going to change for a whole host of reasons, okay? But we're walking and telling you, we have a plan. Our process is managing the plan. We're going to keep you up to date, okay? We're not going to bombard you with things. We're not going to, um, you know, give you tons and tons of things that you need to read. No. We're just going to keep you up to date. These are the points in the process, regardless of whether the time, time slots move around, you know, a month a year, whatever the case may be, you're probably going to have to, you might be involved in some testing or something like that. You're probably going to have to be get trained on it. And then after that, we're coming up with a support process for you. So that way, once the project team does go, you know, this is kind of how you get the help. And we're going to give you the names of the people that, that will help you and that sort of thing. So what we do is kind of smash things down, spread it out across the life cycle, Okay, and, and we're giving them manageable information according to some of the best practices that, that, that you know, we've identified and implemented that have actually proven very effective, particularly for frontline worker um, folks. So just in terms of tax, tactics and kind of addressing that valley, we're already smoothing out that valley because we're smashing it down and spreading it across from inception all the way through to you know, way after go live and adoption. Now, what's the key from a tactical perspective, particularly for the frontline workers, it's making sure their direct managers are part of that process, right? How do you get to their managers? You go to their bosses, you know? So now we start getting into to the importance of organizational alignment, right? Making sure that you're building in this, this two-way, um, you know, uh, engagement. I don't even call it communications because again, I view communications as a tactic, you know, um, but I'm talking about purely engagement and making sure that everybody stays aligned as we kind of move through that process. So we actually do spend a significant amount of time putting in those, those, those touch points, you know, and building out those roles for those folks 
uh, very, very early on to make sure that that we can go ahead and and, and pulse things. You know, for a yeah. lot of frontline workers, they don't have access to things like emails and that sort of right. thing. So what do you have to do? You have to rely on the manager, you know, in a, in a lot of instances or print materials or whatever. It depends on the work environment, right? So I think you're spot on there, Tony. And I think it raises, um, it helps me understand the importance of frontline leaderships, mm-hmm. leadership for the success of you know transformative initiatives like this. Mm-hmm. We, we've seen this in our business, uh, in my day job, as I call it. Mm-hmm. And we've also heard this a lot on the podcast. I think there's been an extreme focus on transformational initiatives in the C-suite and down on the front lines, those men and women that are impacted. But that immediate frontline leadership is... I think going to be the make it or break it resource in the organization, because if they're not on board, when those frontline employees come back to their boss, their supervisor, whoever it is, and either need help or are looking for validation that this change is going to stick, uh, as silly as that sounds, I think sometimes there's yeah. a perception that, hey, th- don't worry about it. As long as we, if we don't use it, they'll revert back to the old process soon enough, right? Mm-hmm. If they're hearing the wrong messaging from, from their direct leadership, then it's going to make it really hard. It's going to be like pushing a rope to get adoption inside the organization. But if we can get those frontline leaders to really be on board with this change, then it just seems to kind of grease the skids for everything downstream from that. And it, I know it sounds so obvious when I'm saying this, this isn't some like major revelation or anything. It's hard. It's, but it's overlooked. It's simple, but it's not easy. Yeah. I, I mean, even even just execution of it is, is very, very, very yeah. tough, you know, because you know, those leaders are feeling the same change capacity challenges yep. that, that, the, that, the, <laughs> that, that their teams are, are feeling. So, um, you know, again, you know, from a tactics perspective, you know, overarchingly that engagement uh, really becomes super high touch and actually becomes a lot of work because um, of the lack of multiple other channels that you might be able to use, you know, I hate to say email because I mean, you know, it's not 1995 anymore who sends emails. Yeah. Right. But, you know, um, but, you know, kind of the, the, the ability to do virtual town halls or global, you know, um, or use your intranets or whatever other, you know, channels that you do have, you get very limited, you know, once you start to get into the front line, very limited because of the nature of the work that's done. Right. So um, you have to be very, very um, targeted, methodical, and you really have to, to rely on that, that leadership alignment all the way through to, you know, the individual uh, employee to make sure that, that the message is not only getting there, but that it's consistent. You have to, it's another big thing. You have to make sure that you're protecting against that the old game of telephone, right? So from right. what you say to, to to the director, to the senior manager, to the manager, to the store manager, to the you know all the way down, yeah. you know. So you have to make sure that there's consistency. So you mentioned the capacity of that frontline manager; they're dealing with the same change mm-hmm. as the frontline workers themselves, and that's probably a good segue to go back to a point that you were making earlier that I wanted to pawn for a little bit more here, which is that. One of the other things, and we've seen this change just in the year that we've been doing this podcast, is the turnover in frontline worker roles has been just profound over mm-hmm. the last you know six to, to 12 months. Mm-hmm. And many positions are left unfilled. So now we have kind of the, the volume of change that's impacting all of us at all various levels throughout the organization. But what we're seeing really with frontline workers is that not only are they impacted by all this change, but they may have 
vacancies in positions adjacent to them, which means that they're trying to fill in or that supervisor or manager that you and I were just talking about, mm -hmm. they're making field service calls. They are running routes. They are working the store floor, right? Whatever that, you know, uh, work environment is, they're probably actually doing also the job that they are there to actually lead because they're probably down a few headcount and they're trying to fill in some of the gaps. Yeah. And I, I just, I think about people in your role where it's like, yeah, you still have to get this change implemented, but these people are already at max capacity. How do you handle that? How do you find some balance between, you know, driving them insane, uh, you know, at the risk of just overwhelming them with more change than they can handle, but still trying to get things, you know, done for the business. It, it seems like it's hard to find the, the right balance. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, you know, um, I take a very risk-based approach to these things. So, which means that, um, I focus less on the condition and more on the impact that it can have on the thing that we're trying to, to accomplish. That's kind of where my North star is in these situations. So if we see that we have, I, I'm dealing with this right now, we have, we have certain initiatives that, have, that with people who have limited capacity and key roles, you know, so, you know, these become tough conversations kind of at the, the leadership and project levels, because now it's okay. Um, this is going to kind of fill the capacity cup for a lot of these people. You know, they're already kind of at their break points. They really can't. So that means that you can throw them in there, but they're not going to do it well, if at all. Right. Or, you know, so, so what is the impact to that? The impact now becomes, Hey, we're going to, you know, run this train down these rails. And then guess what? Once we get to the Santa Fe overpass, guess what the rails are missing <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> kind of a situation to paint pictures. So, um, or um, because we're having the conversations now, you know, we can take steps to mitigate some of that. So what are some of the mitigation steps we can have? What about temp hires? How do we backfill that? Um, how do we elite, can we reorganize certain things in the name of the initiative or project that we're trying to, you know, whether it's temporarily or in some cases permanently, you know, when I talk about taking a risk-based approach to, to things, the fact that we kind of go in with this, um, like I had mentioned, more of kind of a, a spread out approach to things to kind of normalize some of those peaks and valleys and get people more comfortable with uncertainty. The reason why we can do that is because our approach already kind of pulls these conversations and I, we look for these things up front. You know, it's part of our analyses. It's part of our kind of teeing these things up. I mean, we do look across the organization and we say, hey, what else are we going to be, you know, challenged with over the course of this thing that we're trying to do? What are our busy business cycles? What other special things are happening? That sort of thing. We have these conversations up front so that we can front load everyone's expectations and say, this is what you're gonna face. This is the likely outcomes. Wanna roll the dice? Go for it, you know, or, you know, let's in certain areas, can we invest to help these people, right? How can we help these people? You know, nine times out of 10, the folks that we're after are the folks who have the tribal knowledge. Right. They're, they're the vested folks. They are the, you know, yeah. but unfortunately, a lot of these folks, because they're the tribal leaders, let's call them, you know, the ones who actually know how everything works in the store or in the DC or wherever the case may be in the hospital, um, they're also the ones that the operations rely on the heaviest, right? You know? So, so how do you kind of split that? You know, 
So a lot of times you can, you can, like I said, you know, if you decide to do backfilling, you could do shadowing, reverse shadowing to quickly bring up, you know, backfills up to speed to kind of handle the operations. You might have to maybe double it up. I mean, there's lots of recipes you can take to it that's really unique to the individual situation. But what I am telling to your listeners, whether they're, you know, leaders, practitioners, whatever the case may be, look for the stuff up, up front. I mean, that's my golden takeaway from this. Take a risk-based view of these things. Think about what the impacts are going to be up front. Look for it. Don't let it find you. Because if it finds you, particularly with the situations that I described earlier, it's really, really going to dampen how, how much an organization can really get value um, out of the, the investments that it's making. Yeah. Value doesn't start until after delivery. Some smart guy I know said that (laughs) early about 30 minutes ago. (laughs) Really give him my number. (laughs) But I, I really appreciate what you just said about that, which I think it's going back to my visual of there being this big valley between IT project implementation teams and, and the businesses need an ability to support it later. I think the sooner we can bring all the stakeholders together, and I know I'm preaching to the choir here, talking to a change management professional, Um, but for anybody else who's listening that hasn't been formally trained and and necessarily uh, experienced with change management strategy, I I think there's so much focus on the front end of the change of the project teams and training and all of those other things that, that happen on the front end. But I love your point about just bringing these topics up earlier in the conversation and asking the question, who is going to be responsible or who are all of the people that will be responsible for these things after we go live, after this project team stands down. And we shouldn't be waiting until we're in day 299 of a 300 day rollout, right? It should, these conversations should be happening at the beginning of the project so that they can acclimate and that, that transition, you know, carrying the baton and, and handing it off to the next team should be as seamless as possible. And I know it's not going to be perfect and I know it won't be totally seamless, but it just needs to be something that's thought out from the beginning. Yeah, I, I, you're absolutely right. You know, and it's, it, it's interesting because everything that we're talking about is not just unique to change practitioners. You know, um, anyone who's tasked with leading some sort of a change, you know, this is really the thinking, whether you're, you know, transformation director or, you know, an HR leader or, you know, whatever, whatever you do for a living, you know, God, God bless, right? Um, it's really about as you have start to tackle this change, don't get caught, don't get excited. You know, of course you want to get started the whole nine yards, but make sure you build in uh, enough time into your strategy to be able to get out and feel out a lot of these challenges Look at the plan that they're that people are proposing. Poke holes in it, but always do it from the lens of what is the people impact that this is going to create. And when I talk about impact, I'm not talking about you know um, do they feel ready for this? Of course not. Nobody's ever ready for this, right? You know, right. I mean that's you know. But if you don't you know get the resources that's needed, if you don't, or if you know you kind of backload a lot of this stuff. What could the potential impacts be? Always look at it from an outcome-based perspective. So that way you can inform and start to have these conversations. It's better to have the conversation on the front six months ahead of time than it is to have it six weeks before something has to happen. Yeah. We all know this inherently, 
you know yep. so so you know i always encourage anyone who has to has to lead change to really think take that risk-based approach to their thinking i love it we're already uh running short of time here before we go i want to ask you what you think is the biggest contribution that you've made and that you continue to make um <laughs> to to the challenges we've talked about today so um there's one thing I'm I'm, rel- I'm very proud of. So, so in a former life, um, I worked for a medical device company, and we we went through a significant transformation with with the sales force. So, the sales force is actually frontline workers in in, in a lot of pharmaceutical, particularly medical device companies, um, because they are doing the selling and they're also delivering product. Um, on almost an as-needed basis in a lot of cases. So they, we actually transformed, the transformation involved uh, changes in terms of accountability for your inventory, but also, you know, we, we automated and it came off of paper, uh, plus launched mobile devices. Yeah, that one almost killed me. But, uh, <laughs> you know, um, the part that I'm particularly proud of is shortly after the go-live, we found out that there was a case where a young man had been uh, badly burned. So this, we're talking like 75% of his body. Wow. Um, and um, our products were some of the products that, that could have saved his life. And because we implemented, you know, uh, not too long after this occurred, uh, I'm sorry, prior to, the, to this occurred, the team was actually able to locate all the inventory strewn across, you know, the various geographies and several folks actually got in their cars, drove to, to the hospital this young man was located and was able to bring the product, you know, very, very quickly. Um, and from what I understand, this, this young man, uh, it saved this young man's life. So um, that's something that I'm particularly proud of. And, and I am going to caveat that by saying I've heard three different versions of the story because a lot of this was hearsay. Mm-hmm. Um, but I heard it from three very credible, reliable sources. So I'm very proud of that. You know, yeah. it's stuck with me for many, many years. Um, so, and I, I apologize. I get very emotional when I talk about that story. What was the second part of your question? <laughs> I, that, that's really it. And I can tell okay. by the way, and, and I, I love that you shared that. And I, I think really that's, it, it raises a, a really good point, Tony, when you share that story, that the, the things that we're talking about, sometimes they, uh, they seem small, you know, rolling out new technology for inventory tracking or, you know, like the example that you just talked about, mm-hmm. th- these things may be that the primary motivation for them may be big corporate objectives. And, and those are the reasons that these projects get funded. But the, just the, the way that things like this permeate out into the human aspect, mm-hmm. uh, that's really what it's all about. That's what the show is about. That's what I spend a lot of time, you know, during my work day is, is really focusing on the people side of change. And I'm a technology geek. I love, yeah, you know, the, the concept of, of automating things and bringing new technology to, uh, you know, into fruition here. But at the end of the day, what we talk about here is, is the impact that it has on people. Your story was a great one. All the stories that you've shared today, and I really appreciate you sharing them with us. Thank you, Justin. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you today. Excellent. Well, we got to wrap it up there. So to our audience, I hope uh, you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I have. And, you know, I'm always harping on this. So uh, just go ahead and do it. Would you just go and rate the podcast? Five-star ratings help ensure that it gets promoted to other professionals like you that are innovating on the front lines. This podcast is sponsored by Skillful, the mobile digital adoption platform for deskless and frontline workers. Visit the website at skyllful.com. And we're always looking for new guests on the show. 
We've had a few of our guests recommend other future guests. So Tony, no pressure on you, but we are always looking for other guests on the show. So if you know somebody that would be a good fit or you out there in the listening audience, uh, we'd love to hear about it. Make an introduction on LinkedIn and uh, we'll get them on the, uh, the show. Tony, thanks again for your time today. 